Alison. Hi, Sarah. I think it's time we had a chat about the police in France. Yeah, we've been talking about this off the air, and it's true. It's become a a big issue here in France. Yeah, which for an awful long time wasn't really uh, addressed. Mm -hmm. The police, they're also known as gardiens de la paix. That translates as, literally, guardians of the peace. And there are also some other less flattering terms, uh, like poulet, uh, chickens, flicks, cops, or even cafards, cockroaches. Yeah, we all have our nicknames for them. But recently in France, their role as peacekeepers has really been somewhat tainted, This, especially around the Yellow Vest protest movement. Yeah, because there have been an increasing number of really quite violent clashes between police and protesters, especially since November 2018, when the Yellow Vest protest first kicked off. According to the journalist David Dufresne, who's been monitoring this whole thing, 550 civilians have been injured during the protest so far. Some of these injuries have been more minor, bruises, some burns, but around 30 people have lost hands or eyes from these very controversial flashball riot guns that the police use sometimes. Now, sociologists say that there is in fact less violence compared to the early 20th century in general, but the use of things like flashballs means that the injuries are much more serious. And the public is also very much more aware of all of this because the scenes get filmed and then they end up on social media. Yeah, there's a recent video, the one that I most recently saw, a guy standing in a line at a demonstration, there's children around, and an officer just goes for him, just Mm. sort of plasters him on the ground. Police officers really wound up obviously something had happened before that wasn't filmed um, so it's probably not a random occurrence but still it was pretty intense and at least on the video it, it really did seem like extreme violence yeah and in another one uh, in the middle of january an officer was filmed again in paris punching a protester in the face when he was already lying on the floor an inquiry has been launched into that these police blunders which are known as bavures here in france are becoming an issue and we're talking more and more about them. Let's take a look at the case of a 15-year-old boy called Lillian Diessier. His jaw was smashed up when a police officer fired an LBD bullet during a yellow vest protest in Strasbourg last year. So the LBDs are these rubber bullets, 40 millimeters. They're quite controversial. Yeah. Diessier wasn't actually in the demonstration. In fact, he was just coming out of a shopping center when he got hit. His mother, Flor, has been fighting for compensation for her son ever since. Uh, he's been disfigured and all also, she wants to get the officer responsible sanctioned. After a 10-month investigation, Strasbourg's assistant prosecutor told me the case was closed. With all the CCTV cameras in Strasbourg that the police can use, they didn't manage to find who had fired the shot. So that's what she wrote in a letter to the French interior minister and the president as part of her campaign to prove her son's innocence. They've expressed no regret, offered no apology. They're treating us with contempt. If we'd been in Paris, I would never have let my son go out. But Strasbourg is calm. The proof is that this was the only Saturday where there was violence. It was a total coincidence that he was there. The initial inquiry, which was handed over to the IGPN, that's the internal police watchdog, did seem to clear the teenager and back the theory that he'd been basically in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's little consolation for the youngster. His mum says it's all had a huge impact on him. He had a hole in his face. His jaw was smashed. They put pins in to strengthen it. 
And for three months, he was stuck at home. He didn't go to school. He spent all day on his PlayStation. He couldn't sleep. Every time I looked at him, I felt so angry. He'd done nothing to deserve this. So Sarah, at the end of November last year, the IGPN decided that the case was closed and they didn't manage to identify the officer who had shot the rubber bullet. But then a few days later, the country's rights defender, that's Jacques Toubon, decided his service would launch its own investigation. That's a pretty rare thing to do. He says in this particular case, the freedom to circulate, the freedom to demonstrate, both of which are regulated under the law, may have been curtailed. So if this investigation does conclude there should be a conviction, well, it's only a suggestion, it's not going to be a binding thing for the government, but it would send out a strong message. In the meantime, Flor Diessier is continuing her fight to get compensation, and she hopes her son Lillian will serve as an example. And my thanks there to Robin Dussain for the interview. So that's a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But of course, many people who have been injured in these clashes and the yellow vest demos, they did choose to be there. They went out to the demonstrations. Yeah, of course, that doesn't mean that they deserve to get roughed up. Of course, we rarely see what's led up to these incidents that have been filmed. We just get the outcome. And it has to be said that some protesters themselves are also very violent, especially members of what's called the Black Blocs. This is this far-left anarchist movement which uses violence to make a statement. Uh, Some members have infiltrated the Yellow Vest demonstrations and the police say they're very, very difficult to identify ahead of time. And then the police themselves, they don't have it easy. There are 150,000 of them nationwide. They've been called on to do a lot of overtime. You know, these demonstrations have been going on every weekend for the last... 14 months uh, so it's a lot of extra work several police officers have also been injured during the demos they're under a lot of stress Uh, they're also the target of a lot of animosity from the protesters during these demonstrations and from the public on one demo a group of yellow vests were filmed taunting police telling them to commit suicide that was a reference to the fact that one police officer commits suicide every four days yeah that's a a growing issue in the police force of this increasing number of suicides they're overextended underappreciated frustrated Even so, though, the police role, of course, is to protect people, not to hurt them. And some of the videos really do show excessive use of force. The government is being forced to react. Uh, Last summer, President Emmanuel Macron referred to what he called unacceptable injuries suffered by both protesters and police during these protests. Since then, he's also um, called out the unacceptable behavior of some officers and saying that that risks undermining the credibility of police in France. And then there's the issue of the use of these controversial weapons. A couple of weeks ago, the interior minister, Christophe Castaner, who is, by the way, the, the boss of the police, and who has been a lot less vocal than Macron, up till now over the issue of police violence, he announced that France was immediately withdrawing a stun grenade known as the GLIF-4 because it contains an explosive charge. Now that's something that the European Court of Human Rights has been asking for now for a long time. France is the only country in the EU to use explosive weapons against protesters. Yeah, so it's good news on the one hand, but it's not that radical because as the police organizations themselves have pointed out, the canister stopped being manufactured anyway a few years ago. Uh. There are virtually no stocks left. It'll be replaced by another one that doesn't contain an explosive, but we don't know actually how dangerous it will turn out to be. 
Okay, so there is the issue of weapons. There's also the attitude of the police themselves, as we said, overworked, stressed out. The police itself is admitted also that there are some bad apples, though a very small minority. What happens to them? Well, they get put into the hands of the IGPN, the Internal Police Watchdog, but the IGPN itself has also come in for a fair amount of criticism. It's been accused of not being neutral enough because it is a police service. You know, it answers to the Interior Ministry and the head is named during the Council of Ministers, so clearly it isn't independent. And is that really unusual here in Europe? Not really. Uh, honestly, there are plenty of other EU countries, Italy, Spain, Germany, which don't have independent bodies investigating the police either. has to be said the UK has the most independent system. They have an independent office for police conduct whose head is approved by Parliament and none of the staff are police officers. Interestingly, there are 1,000 of them. That's three times more than France's IGPN. an author of comic books, died this week aged 79. And this song, Femme Libérée, or Liberated Woman by Cookie Dingler, was written partly in tribute to her. Loads of people, including the Ministry of Education, not just culture, have been paying tribute to her. Well, comic books, uh, bande dessinée or BD, are, are big, a big deal here in France. Yeah, they're seen as serious adult reading matter, not just for children. And British, she played a big role in making that transition in the late 60s to 70s. She brought women characters especially and a certain amount of social satire into a genre that up until then was very male-dominated. The first character she created in 1969 was called Cellulite. Mm, I wonder if that says something about her universe. It does, and like all her characters, Cellulite wasn't particularly attractive. She had big bags under her eyes, she had a huge bulbous nose, and she was desperate to get hitched. I guess a parody of that sort of fairy tale, I'll meet my Prince Charming, everything will turn out okay. British, she said she created the character because uh, cellulite reflected the concerns or obsessions, you might say, of many young women at the time uh, in relation to, to the way they looked. But there was social critique behind all of that. In an interview she gave later, she lashed out at women's magazines Marie Claire and Elle. For her, they were enslaving women to a certain idea of beauty. Tout cet état d'esprit est entretenu par quoi Par Elle, par Marie Claire, par, par toutes ces saloperies de journaux De leur dire... Euh... They're getting women to pay charlatans to have painful needles put in their thighs, she says here. I would love to see the thighs of these Marie Claire journalists. For her then, physical appearance didn't matter that much, but it was how you saw yourself that really mattered. And as a young woman up to the age of about 25, she thought she was ugly. 
Oh, so to what extent then was she basing her characters on herself? She certainly put a lot of herself into her characters. One of the most successful series was called Les Frustrés or Frustrated People. It was a satire on the Parisian left-leaning bourgeoisie, what we might call champagne socialists in the UK. And she admitted that she was part of that group. Yeah, kind of what the, we'd call the bobos today, right? Absolutely. She predicted it all in a way. These were the bourgeois bohemians with the values of the 1960s counterculture, but then also also into the materialism of the 1980s and, and the humour came out of that disconnect, if you like. So Les Frustrés was hugely successful. The middle class got to laugh at themselves and the more, if you like, working classes got to have a laugh at their expense. Later on in the 1980s, she turned her attention to teenagers and she developed this character of a, called Agrippine, who was a bourgeois spoilt brat who terrorised her family, especially her mum. Loads of families could identify with that. And it was later turned into a TV series in 2001. So she was a trailblazer being a woman working in this male-dominated genre of comics. How much of a feminist was she? Well, she covered a lot of so-called women's issues, if you like. She dealt with pregnancy and motherhood, but often in a very brutal way. And then on some issues, she was way ahead of her time. She dealt with medically assisted procreation, for example, even surrogacy. Don't forget, this was in the 80s and 90s, long before those issues became the, the hot-button subjects that they are now. It's no surprise then that the philosopher Roland Barthes called her best sociologist of the year in 1976. And while the biddy genre remains still very male-dominated, some French women have managed to push through, and Bretiche undoubtedly opened the door to them. Vive le vin, vive le raisin, vive le lait de la vigne. Je peux m'arrêter quand ça me plaît, ça me fait pas ces bons signes. So what's in a name? Turns out with wine, quite a lot. Bordeaux, Burgundy. Yeah, all these places in France, synonymous with the wine that's made in them. It's a big deal to be part of it or not. Champagne, for example, this can really make or break your business. And then there are labels like organic, biodynamic, natural. Natural wine is a growing trend, isn't it, Sarah? Although I don't think it has a label as such. No, no, it's, it's quite new and definitely not labels. So there's this move towards making wine without sulfites, but so far no labels. But in general, the labeling is for consumers. Um, increasingly, wine in France is being exported, and users don't ever really meet the producers. Um, even in France, they don't necessarily either because they're buying their wine in a wine shop. Um, the labels become important to show a kind of authenticity, where a wine comes from, or a proof of a certain way it's made. Winemakers and exporters come together at trade fairs each year. And the very big one, Vinexpo, is usually in Bordeaux. As you say, it's huge. It attracts uh, about 2,000 winemakers? Yeah, yeah. This year it came to Paris. Uh, the idea is to centralize it and to really support the export market. Um, and it had a section specially for organic wine. This is growing, apparently, in these expos. Annick Jourdain of the eponymous Domaine Jourdain that she runs with her husband um, and a partner who's a fifth-generation winemaker in Chinon. This is um, AOC Chinon in the Loire Valley, so it has its label. It's officially that kind of wine. It's mostly red, and they've been organic since 2008, biodynamic since 2015. Uh, biodynamic agriculture is organic, but it has other concepts 
some of them are kind of mystical, but it deals with soil fertility and, and really looks at plants and the land as intertwined. Now, her vineyard has labels. So EcoCert, it's the world's or one of the world's largest organic certifications. In 2016, they got the Demeter label. That's one of the largest biodynamic certifications in agriculture. And Anik told me that working naturally is important for her and the labeling it as such is increasingly important for the consumers. We are a small family vineyard and we want to work in a natural way. Why is it important to work in a natural way? We think it's better for the planet, we think it's better for your health and uh, we saw that our vines are in better uh, shape with uh, this way of farming. For example, last year we had a very hot summer without any rain. From it was a, a, a record hot summer in France. It was very hot. From June to September, we have no rain at all. So and we are not allowed to spray the wine and to irrigate. And uh, we saw the vine in our way of producing. They have the roots very deep and they had no problem with the hot. There were stories of some vineyards where the vines were just shriveling, the grapes were shriveling. You didn't have that problem. Yes. And so you went through the labeling process, both for the organic and the biodynamic. What's the whole process to get them? It's a label, but it's also a way of producing. And uh, when we are satisfied, it's the truth, because we have to respect uh, some rules. It takes a lot of work, right? Yes, it's, um, for example, in uh, biodynamic farming, we are not allowed to use a, a lot of sulfate. We are allowed for the red wine, not more than 60 milligram of sulfates. And we just put before bottling to preserve the wine. It's one of the examples. And we are not allowed to use a pesticide and insecticide, of course. So we plug the soil and the roots are deeper and the plants are in better shape. What's the importance of actually having the certification and the label? Because I feel like there's a lot of, or there used to be, maybe not so much anymore, um, winemakers who, who work in biodynamic or organic but who didn't get the label. But now there seems to be a move towards wanting the label. It's, it's important. It seems to be important because it's a guarantee that we work with this way of farming. If you say, oh, I work as an organic producer, but I am not certified. In one year where it is difficult to work in uh, organic, they can't use anything. They can't use any pesticide. We are not allowed to do that. So. That's better to be certified to prove that. And if it is a way in which we work, it's not a problem to be certified. You've been working at this for many years. Having the label, though, it seems to be increasingly important for consumers. Like, they, they don't trust it unless it has a label. Now the customers are very sensible to this label. More and more people want organic wine because they think that it's better for their health. So more and more people are producing it this way. And if there is no label, if there is no certification, maybe it's not true. So it's also kind of a, a commercial interest for you. Yes, of course. When we export our wine, some countries prefer to have a biodynamic or a organic farming. That's what you can see in this exhibition, where there is a, a specific area to organic and biodynamic producer. So you're a relatively small family operation, um, but you are here at 
Vin Paris, which is a, a big salon, a big expo for the export market a lot. Um, how does, is there a tension there between staying small and staying really true to how you work and then the demands of the market of wanting more and more and more? We are a small producer, that's true, but we need to sell our bottle. And the French market is not big enough to sell all the wine. Did you used to be able to just sell everything in France, or has that always been the case of needing to export? It's coming more and more, because people drink less, less quantity, but maybe higher quality, but people drink less wine. And for us, it's necessary to export our wine. So we are looking for some importers in new countries. Some we export in, uh, in England, we export in US, we export in Belgium, and we are looking for new customers. Yeah, have you always come to Paris for Vin Paris? It's the first time. It's the first time for us. Why the decision to come to Paris this year? Because they mix with Vinexpo and the Wine Paris, and we think it's good for the market of Europe, mainly Europe. Do you find that you've had customers that you might not have had elsewhere? It's not not too bad because we saw some uh, customers here we didn't see in another exhibition, so it seems to be a good uh, exhibition. So Sarah, she's saying there that one of the markets is the US, but that is getting very complicated these days, isn't it? With all these tariffs kicking in against French products, including wine entering the US. Yeah, wine exports from France have actually dropped almost a fifth to the US in the last part of 2019. There's been an additional 25% tariff introduced at the end of October on French wine exports to the US. And remember, this was a reaction by the US for EU subsidies to Airbus uh, to help it against its rival, the American company Boeing. Yeah, the U.S. thought it was unfair, trade wars. Anyway, there are also worries about the British market with Brexit, also the slowing of the Chinese economy. China is also a big and growing export market for French wine. In fact, the three countries, U.S., Britain, and China, account for 50% of France's overall wine and spirit sales. So it's a big deal. The French Association of Wines and Spirits Exporters has repeatedly called for the government to compensate the drop in sales from the U.S. tariffs in particular. This week, they asked for 300 million euros to cover the 250 million euros of tariffs and 50 million in lost revenue. The French government has said, well, we'll help you with this wine fair. We'll try to support the exports. But really, it's up to the European Union to pick up the tab. That's it for the show. Spotlight on France is a podcast from Radio France International. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review there or why not send us a note? Spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We're off next week. Subscribe to the podcast to get the next episode. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.